Mark 8, verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Are we all right? Ah, hello again. It's me again. Uh, it is wonderful to, to be with you. And um, for those who don't know me, um, I'm Ollie Benyon. I'm the associate um, vicar, and we're actually having a little pause in our normal series today. We're just, just taking a, uh, just a, a single passage where, uh, out of context for our normal series today. So, but if you don't know me, I'm Ollie, uh, and um, I've been here for eight years, um, married to Lois. Actually, I'm particularly sad today because my wife has so chosen to, uh, to, to stay in bed and come and listen to you later this, this afternoon <laughs> and not me. I don't know, isn't that, that's pretty cold, isn't it? Anyway, um, so if you see my wife, you know my wife, you can just, you can make that little mention. Oh, I didn't see you. Um, um, it's so wonderful to be with you. And um, I, I wanted to start um, by just sharing a little bit of my, my testimony, my story. If you've been here for a while, you would have heard it before. I'm not changing it, it's still the same one. And um, I'm just gonna, I, I, I've, I've come from a family of six. I have one brother, two sisters, and two parents. And so I wasn't brought up as a Christian. Um, we did the traditional church thing at Christmas and Easter, like many people did, and I sometimes, you know, would go to the, the local Sunday school, and I, so I had some understanding. But my, my dad was an MP when I was uh, younger, and um, he was a relatively successful businessman after that, and my mum at home with the kids, and, you know, we, our life was pretty good. We hung out with successful people. We went on nice holidays. I lived in a pretty nice house. You know, we had what many people, I think back, you know, would have desired in this world. Um, I remember when I was 10, uh, my parents invited us to go along to a Christian holiday camp. I have no idea how we ended up there. They don't even know how they ended up there. They were just invited, fooled into it, thinking there was going to be free childcare and nice people. And so they went there. And um, we all went, leaving my eldest sister behind. Um, she had other plans. She was in her 20s. And, um, and during the week, we all heard about this person of Jesus. We all discovered a little bit about him, um, uh, and um, in our own way, in that week, we all decided to become Christians. Me, my, my brother, my sister, my mum, my dad, we all returned home after this one week on the Isle of Wight saying, Jesus is Lord. 
to the shock of my elder sister. It's like, what is going on? I leave you for one week. Hallelujah. Uh, the, uh, it was a difficult year uh, for her. And the next year, we dragged her along with us. Uh, and we had to go to the Isle of Wight. It's the only way you can find out about Jesus is on the Isle of Wight. And uh, we had to took her there. And uh, she became a Christian that week. Hurrah. And, um, and, um, and still to this day, we, we are all followers of Jesus. Uh, many, it's like 30 odd years later. And um, three of us are clergy as well. I know that's a slippery slope. Um, uh, now, you might be thinking that I became a Christian just because my parents, my brother, my sister became a Christian. And, you know, I'm sure that had a significant uh, you know, influence. But that moment for me was real. That moment for me, I encountered Jesus, the presence of God, and I said yes to following him. Now, if you skip forward a few years, I was rather small for my age. I was bullied for being too small, too short, too skinny. And my ears were seemingly out of sight of proportion to my body because they were this big, but I was small, so it was like huge. And um, I thought I was a bit too young to die as a martyr. So I was convinced that you know, raising anything about Christianity would just meant imminent death. And um, there was one individual I disliked more than anyone, and he tormented me for about a year. At one point, we ended up in a fight. I was at a boarding school. That's what happens. And um, well, he won. And um, <laughs> that was the last straw. And I, I hated to be different. I said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be like everyone else. And that's such a common thing. You know, we like to just fit in, don't we? Um, and at the age of 15, I remember the turning point in my faith. I was sitting in my room when I noticed a note was pushed under my door. And um, it was from the guy who I had had a fight with previously. And can you believe it? The guy had become a Christian. I just thought, that is so annoying. You know, if anyone, <laughs> I didn't want him to become a Christian. And he put this letter under my door. And really, I, 35 years later, I still have this letter. It's right here. It's like this little scrappy little piece of paper that I've treasured. And he told me in this little letter that he was, um, you know, he heard that I was a Christian, maybe quite covertly, and uh, if we could get together to pray on a basis that the pair of us might make a difference in our school. And I was just so taken aback by his bravery, his honesty, uh, and I was embarrassed I turned away from the Lord. And uh, but we started meeting together, praying together, and um, you know things did happen in our school. People came to faith in our school, and it was an extraordinary time. And um, I remember up to that point, before this letter, I hadn't really taken time to look at the Bible. I hadn't. I found reading quite difficult when I was a kid. I don't know if some people you know struggle reading the Bible here because you know actually words can be challenging for you. Um, you know, I had faith in God, but it wasn't based on a great understanding of who Jesus was and what it means to follow him. Okay? It's, it, a lot of people can follow someone, but actually to, to, to really live it out each and every day, what does that mean to follow Jesus? So I began reading the Gospels, which are the accounts of Jesus. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have a whole bunch of them free at the back if you want to go and grab one. And I started... With, uh, and, and after reading these books, I just discovered a God who loved me, who had just great plans and purposes for my life. And I remember just committing to, to following Jesus again. And I think there are sometimes there are certain seasons of lives when we go, all right, line in the sand moment again. I'm all in again. Um, 
I'm now 42 years old, and I, you'll be pleased to know I ceased to believe in other kind of fairies or mythical creatures. So why do I carry on with Christianity? Why have I dedicated my life? You know, I'm ordained in the Church of England. Why have I dedicated my life to serving in this way? Well, I have come to the conclusion, it is true. Jesus is the Son of God. And so the question, I'm, it's a very simple question I'm here today, is I want to ask you today, who do you think Jesus is? And is he worth truly following? You know, in the way that he calls us to follow him. Well, our passage today gives us some answer to these questions. Um, in verse 27, if you want to keep it open in the Bible, uh, we're looking at um, uh, in Mark 8. So right at the beginning of verse 27, it says this. Uh, it starts by telling us that Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. Now, we often skip these little details because, you know, when we read Scripture, we just think, oh, maybe it's a nice, it sounds like a very exotic quality. It's like the Isle of Wight. Um, uh, but on this occasion, you know, there's, there's real significance in, in why this is in the text. Caesarea, you know, it refers to Caesar, and Philippi is Philip, the king who, who built it. And so Caesarea Philippi was a city built to honor Caesar Augustus because Caesar Augustus has been deified in, in the Roman Empire. And the saying throughout the empire was, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. It's very just helpful for us to know that in this very place, in the shadow of the temple dedicated to Caesar being Lord, Jesus decides to ask his disciples, his followers, who do people say I am? And they give him the answer. Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say some of the prophets. And then he asks, but what about you? What about you? Who do you say I am? Have these last three years of ministry uh, revealed my true identity to you? And then Peter gives him an answer that must have lift Jesus' spirits. He says, you are the Messiah. He says, in effect, Jesus is Lord. In the very place that everyone else is saying Caesar is Lord, he says Jesus is Lord. Caesar is deified. Jesus is crucified. Guess who is Lord? If you think about it, 2,000 years ago, if you had been invited to bet on which would last the longest, the Greek and Roman empires with their vast might, wealth, and culture, and the empires whose armies had dominated the entire known world for centuries, or just a nobody like Jesus and his ill-educated disciples who, who never wrote anything down, and uh, were roundly defeated and their leader crucified. The answer would have been so obvious. You know, what is the point of the question? Who would put money on those odds? Well, the empires have been 
totally swept away. And Jesus' movement of Christianity is the fastest growing revelation. It's not a religion, it's, it's a revelation. If you think that, uh, that Christianity is dying in parts, maybe in the UK, in, in the West, then just look at the incredible growth in Africa, in China, South America, and in the Far East. It is extraordinary. According to Wikipedia, uh, in 1910, there were 600 million Christians in the world. In 2020, there were 2.38 billion. That's quite a lot. And the Christian names of Peter, Paul, Thomas, Mary, Joseph, Christopher, James, Ruth, Esther, and Elizabeth are popular right across the Western world and have been for centuries. And we call our dogs Caesar and Nero. And we throw bones at them. There's even dog food called Caesar, isn't there? Who is Jesus? Peter declares, you are the Messiah. And we know Jesus' response to Peter in Matthew 16. Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. Peter was taught, was taught about who Jesus was by God himself. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? He didn't work it out himself. God revealed this truth to him. You know, if you don't know the Lord Jesus here today, maybe there are just major obstacles in your head. You think, oh, there's, there's so much, you know, how, how am I meant to know? Well, you can always God to reveal who he is to you today. I've seen that time and time again. We were doing the Alpha Holy Spirit Day yesterday. Alpha is a kind of ex uh, exploration of the Christian faith, and there's a course. And we spent a whole day together yesterday. And people are on very different parts in their journey of faith. Some people wouldn't even say they have a faith. But we spent some time just asking God to reveal himself to the people. And that's exactly what happens. It's extraordinary. The Lord was so kind and met with people just because we asked and I want to encourage you, maybe at the end of the service today, if you want the Lord to reveal himself to you, just ask. Peter knew Jesus was the Messiah, but his image of what that looked like was just a little bit off. <laughs> Have a look at verse 31 with me. He says this, He, that's Jesus, then began to teach them what the Son of Man, that the Son of Man now, this, this term, son of man, it's quite helpful just to pause in this, would be full of meaning for the disciples. It doesn't really have the same meaning for us today. It's an Old Testament phrase that comes from Daniel 7. Daniel, in, in the book of Daniel, is seeing a vision that he sees God who identifies himself as the Ancient of Days. And then he sees one as the Son of Man approaching the Ancient of Days. And the Son of Man, it was understood, was the Messiah, the promised deliverer of the Jewish nation. Okay, so this is what was going on in their minds. And so we have Peter saying, Jesus is the Messiah. And then Jesus confirming this by referencing to himself as the Son of Man in Daniel. They would be thinking, Jesus is saying he's the long-awaited Messiah. He's confirming it. The fulfillment of all that Israel believed and longed for. And what else they would have associated with the Son of Man, uh, uh, with the Messiah, is also in Daniel 7. And it says, the Son of Man is given authority, glory, and sovereign power. 
You know, that sounds good, doesn't it? That's what I'm sure they're really up for that. Uh, so when Jesus was saying these things, you can imagine the disciples leaning forward in anticipation and eager to hear what Jesus is going to say. You know, God's people have been waiting for hundreds of years, and now Jesus is going to rise up with all power and authority and overthrow the Romans, and they're going to be like, yeah, here is our hero. Come on. And then Jesus says, verse 31, the Son of Man must suffer. That's not the plan. That's a crazy plan. Nothing prepared them for this teaching. They had no category for suffering. Jesus introduced the cross, and they don't know, they don't know what to do with it. Maybe you're here. You don't even know what to do with the cross. This makes no sense. Why the cross? And Jesus goes on to explain how he will be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and then, then look what happens. The disciples are hearing what Jesus is saying. And so shocked by his words, Peter you know, comes out and he just like leads Jesus. I'm going to have a little quiet word. And he rebukes Jesus. He rebukes him. Peter had just identified Jesus as the Messiah and had a clear idea of what that looked like. But, but now Jesus was spouting out the worst plan ever. It was like a plan for losers. And you know, Peter... He wasn't going to follow a loser. That's just crazy. He's only going to be following a winner. Jesus needed a talking to. And we know what Peter said, to Matthew, uh, said in Matthew 16. There's a few different versions of the story. But in Matthew 16, it says, Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Peter had no category for the cross. It just wasn't in his framework. He had a category for a throne and power. Yeah, like many of us, you know, who doesn't have a category for that? But, but not for, for a cross. In verse 33, but when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan. The same Peter who Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven, is now being called Satan. Why? That seems so extreme. Well, Jesus, he, he didn't want to go to the cross. I think it's so important for us to recognize that Jesus had no, he, he wasn't skipping to the cross in joyfulness. You know, this pained him to go there. And the invitation from someone he loved to avoid the cross would have caused him just great distress and pain and temptation, I'm sure. Jesus chose the cross out of love for us. He chose the cross because of our sin. Jesus knew that we could not deal with our sin, our fallenness, our brokenness, however much we tried to clean it off. We couldn't do it ourselves. But he chose the cross because he could deal with it. It says in Colossians 1, 21, this is the message version, it says, by giving himself completely at the cross, actually dying for you, Christ brought you over to God's side and put your lives together, whole and holy in his presence. You don't walk away from a gift like that. I love that image. 
brought us to his side, restores us, makes us holy in his presence. And this is a gift that we get to receive. Who is Jesus? Well, he is the Messiah, the Son of Man, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. He could have come full of power and might and authority, but he chose the cross and laid his life down for you and for me so we could be made holy in his presence. Our lives put back together and be set free from death. That is on what is on offer for us all. That is what's on offer for us all. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? You know, you may have, okay, he's the Messiah, but what does it mean to follow a servant king, the one who's going to lay his life down for me? Verse 34, he says this, Then he called the crowd to him along with the disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Now, I'm going to just say three very short things. These aren't major points, okay, before you get really panicked. Um, Just the first thing, being a follower of Jesus, it is costly. All right, I don't want you to be be fooled into it. It is costly. Um, Jesus never bribed people to follow him with offers of an easy life. He did quite the opposite. And actually, one of the things, I remember my dad came a Christian uh, because he just thought no one, all his disciples ended up dying for this man Jesus. And, you know, they wouldn't have done that unless they, they really knew it was true, that he really raised from the dead. That, you know, it is costly, okay? It is costly. He told them as plainly, as Jesus said, he told them as plainly as he could what it means to follow him. Let there be no confusion. Don't expect an easy ride or an army or a worldly power. Expect trials. Expect persecution. Be even prepared to die. And that is what his disciples did. We may not experience many of those things today, but you know, that is what is required. My parents, they live right next to uh, Winston Churchill's grave uh, in Bladen in Oxfordshire, and uh, uh, there are always people sitting by his grave giving thanks for his life. And one of the things that marked him out as a great leader was his, his stark honesty, wasn't it? And um, when he took charge of the country during the Second World War, he memorably said that all he offered was blood, toil, tears, and sweat. And um, that, it, yeah, it stands out. No fake promises, no power plays. This is all I've got. And uh, I just think the similarities, you know, Jesus never tried to convince people to follow him by offering them an easy life. He challenged them to wake up from their slumber and to walk a path that, yes, would be costly. You know, it is costly, but it would also be the most glorious one you could take. The second thing we just learned from this just little verse, really, is Jesus never called people to do anything that he wasn't willing to face himself. There was a famous Roman general called Quintus Fabius Maximus, and he was discussing with his his staff how to take a, a difficult position on something. And someone suggested a plan and said, it will only cost the lives of a few men. And Fabius looked at him and he said, are you, he said, willing to be one of those few? Jesus doesn't just sit at a distance and play with our lives like, you know, some pawns on a chess set and, uh, and just, you know, and just keep his distance. But what Jesus demands from us, he too was, was ready to face. 
Um, we've got baptisms, as Ben was saying a little later tonight, and we've got uh, little baptism books which uh, we're going to be giving out to people. And if you want one, I'm sure we can give you one. But uh, it's got all their testimonies in them. And one of them, um, a guy called Daniel, he said this in part of his testimony. He says, life started making sense again when someone told me how offensive Christianity is. How offensive it is that a symbol of Christianity is a man being bled to death on the cruelest form of a Roman torture. Over the past year, God has revealed to me how this symbol is actually a symbol of love, of complete, unconditional love. That Jesus let the people he loved most curse, beat, humiliate, and nail him to a cross. This is what love looks like. There is a cost in following Jesus, but we also know that the Messiah, the Lord of Lords, chose to walk the same path that he invites us to. And the final, or maybe the hardest lesson Jesus teaches us is this, in verse 34, 34, whoever wants to be my disciples must deny themselves. I don't like that one. Everything inside me kind of recoils and goes, I don't like denying myself. Uh, Nothing natural and easy about that, is there? Uh, Some of you may be doing, you know, giving up something in Lent, you know, I know it's hard. It's really hard. And we're not really meant to tell people what we're giving up, but we've told everybody that we've given up something and everybody knows. Um, it's not easy. But we remember uh, the great passage in Philippians 2 that describes how Jesus, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus gave up his place on heaven for us. He denied those privileges. And now he calls you to give up our earthly crowns of being in control. You know, what does that look like? We're saying, you know, saying no to yourself and yes to Christ. It is saying no to our love of ease and comfort. That is so easy, isn't it? You know, just to say no to that. I'm not just going to be tempted by that. Saying no to our desires of self-seeking and self-will and power and authority for my own gain. It's saying no to instincts and desires to touch and taste forbidden fruits, forbidden things you know are wrong. And it's saying a big yes, the voice and command of Jesus. That each of us will be able to say the same words the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 2.20. He says, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And the wonderful mystery of all this this denying of yourself and following Jesus, we might expect would bring us a bit of misery and you know, just despair and just ugh. But instead it brings freedom, it brings life, it brings fullness that only our creator can give us. Another one of the little testimonies for this evening, it's just one of the lines, she says, um, life didn't get easier circumstantially, but I had an inner joy that, I, that could never be taken away. And I bet if you ask anyone here who knows and loves the Lord, they could probably say that same line. It doesn't necessarily get easier, but there's an inner joy that is just amazing.
So just to finish, I want to end by just repeating that question that Jesus asked his disciples. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say I am? If like Peter, you believe he is the son of God, the Messiah, then are you willing to truly follow him, even if it costs you your reputation, your, your hopes, your dreams, personal goals? However great the cost may seem, though, however great, God loves to pour out his abundant blessings on those who depend on him, who ask him. He's got so much on offer for us. But if you are here today and you are exploring faith, maybe being dragged along by someone, um, then I would encourage you to do what I did and take some time to find out if this person of Jesus is worth following to look into the evidence. And we do have a bunch of books at the back which just explore some of the, the evidence, some of the questions of, of, of if, this is, if, there's really, if this is really worth, you know, worth, it, worth following in the first place. And I suppose what I've been trying to tell you this morning is, is it possible that Jesus was and is who he claimed to be? That he does in fact love you so much that he was willing to lay down his life for you. I am convinced. What about you? Let me pray as we, as we finish. Lord God, I just thank you that um, you love to reveal yourself to us. And I, I thank you from this passage that Peter worked out who you are, not because necessarily because he did lots of reading about it, but actually because through your, you revealed yourself to him. And Lord, I, I ask that every one of us here, even if we are followers of you or not followers of you today, that you would reveal your love for us, reveal who you are for us, reveal purposes for our life, and empower us to, to live those out, even when it's costly and when it, when it, it doesn't always not, you know, appeal straight away. Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would meet with us. We thank you for your word today. Amen.